The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello, friends, and welcome to a special edition of CPR Unplugged. My name is Stephen Marshall, your friendly neighborhood therapist, and I am guest hosting the podcast today where we'll be discussing danger to others, a clinician's role in preventing violence. So joining me today for our discussion, we have three guests. We have Dr. Michael Weinberg, who has a career-long focus in suicide prevention and advising clinicians working with suicidal clients. He has a commitment to saving one life at a time. We have Dr. Amy Paul, our Chief Clinical Officer here at CPR. She provides guidance on clinical quality and performance, and she is also an expert in public safety, caring for our first responders and their dependents. Then we have Michael Boylan, our co-CEO. Michael is our fearless leader and has an extensive career in crisis work. He's been engaged in community advocacy, promoting public health for most of his career, and we're very lucky to have all three of our guests. So I will kick it off by addressing Dr. Weinberg. When it comes to assessing for danger to others, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? Well, I I think it's a very complicated answer uh, because it involves multi-systems, but if we start in, for example, the emergency department where therapists frequently see people who are presenting as a potential danger to others, do we know how to ask the right questions to get the information we need to make a good disposition? And are we able to observe not just them, but how they interact with others in the hospital setting? Do we get collateral information? Because frequently we know that, and this is true for suicidal patients also, self-reporting is not very reliable. Often they will, patients won't tell you the truth or write, be uh, very upfront with what their plans are in terms of either hurting themselves or hurting others. So I think part of the task that we need to do to do this right is to know how to answer, ask the right questions that open the client up or the patient up uh, to give more honesty, be able to have access to collateral information or cooperating information that will, that will give us the knowledge we need to make a good disposition. And then I think the third thing, which we'll talk probably about a little later on in the podcast, is as a system, what do you have when you have that information? Now, what do I do? And that would be like a cooperative uh, kind of uh, approach with the hospital being a partner, law enforcement being a partner, possibly the state attorney's office. But we've got partners now that we can bring together as a team and say, here's what the deal is. This is our concern. We're, what's the next step? And we're not doing that. What we're doing is more of he ha- he or she hasn't committed a crime yet, doesn't meet criteria for a petition. And so these people are being discharged. And, and I think we can do a lot more than that. 
you know, you, you'd mentioned asking the right questions and trying to get to the heart of, you know, predictive behaviors. So what are some of those right questions that we want to be asking folks if we're trying to get them to open up and, and discuss some, some pretty dark subjects? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things we want to look for is, is there some drastic change in our patient's behavior? You know, is he, and I'm using he because he frequently is, I'm being stereotypic, uh, but it could be a she. <laughs> um, but is there a history of violence? Is there a history coming up of aggression towards society, towards policies? Are you hearing a lot of hate speech? You know, and, and how are you trying to get some of that out? versus uh, just asking, you know, a question, have you been angry recently? Well, that's not going to give you much information, you know, or access to, to uh, weapons. Uh, we do ask that question, you know, do you have a gun at home and so forth? But I also like asking more deeper questions in terms of what's the caliber? Where do you keep it? You know, is it locked up? Who has access to to it, get more information about that potential uh, weapon that may be used in a crime versus just noting the gun is in a safe. So, so we're talking about risk coupled with means as yes. sort of a predictor, you know, if, if they're actually going to go through with something like this. And you had mentioned drastic changes in behavior, history of violence, hate speech. So those are the ideas that might be predictive of someone taking action in a, in a heinous way, like, you know, what we've seen around the country. Is there a particular character profile for someone who's going to act out violently or, or could it be anyone? I think anybody has the potential. It's about boundaries, you know, and your ethics and, and things of that sort. And what mental state you're in, you know, is this somebody who is on drugs? Is this somebody who uh, does not have good boundaries and believes that they are justified in hurting others if others don't do what they want them to do. But we need to ask the questions to kind of get that stuff out. And I think we need to take the time to try to get that collateral information. Especially, you know, a lot of the crimes committed in schools are done by minors, mm. you know? And so we need to bring the parents inv involved in this. and. Like one of the tragedies uh, that we know of uh, recently, the, the perpetrator was given a gun for a gift by his parents. And there was all kinds of information about how this individual was really not mentally stable to have possession of a firearm. So I, again, that's where I, I don't think we can just look at the individual in and of by himself but we should try also to get that information from others. Because when people are going to do a, a crime like a mass murder, they frequently talk about it. And they're almost like proud of that, 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 that they're thinking this way. It, it's sort of they get off on it. And so you hear after the fact, oh, yeah, I just didn't connect the dots. It's not that it was a big secret. You know? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of old school thinking on psychopathy, right? And so you have a lot of um, old research that looks at like, you know, that the folks who are committing these crimes, and which usually are coupled with 
uh, self-harm to themselves right after, right, um, are somehow from a psychopath standpoint. And that's really not the case anymore. Um, like Dr. Weinberg mentioned, you know, some of these are minors, uh, some of these are college-age students. You know, I, I think it kind of goes a little bit, we could we could take off some of the clinical part of it for a second. You know, the term cynicism looks at how we view the world and how we view our relationship to the world and how we view others. There's a lot of research on cynicism. And when we get to a place in our life where we can create an us versus them, that that's when some of this occurs. And that occurs in a lot of different states. So even in a minor child, right, when Dr. Weinberg is referring to asking the right questions, you can't ask an eight-year-old, right? Like, are there are there people that you necessarily hate or you don't get along with? They might answer you, but there starts to create a social class, but they call it something different. Well, maybe on the playground, Tommy and Jimmy, they never play with me, right? And they actually don't even let me take the basketball from them. And then the follow-up question is, well, what do you do with that? What, what do you think about that? Well, they think they're better than me and let's, and they're not right. And then that becomes where some of that, some of that information is that we're getting. I had the honor of, you know, going to U of A recently after the tragedy they had with that professor. Um, and as Dr. Weinberg mentioned, there was so much information. There were so many things that had led up to this space that uh, didn't look necessarily specifically like committing crimes, although there were some, you know, that were some harassment and things like that. But some of this was feeling wronged. So, you know, somehow I've been wronged and it was and and that was a bad decision. Some of it was about, um, you know, being being out uh, outcasted from from something I believe in. So you you look at these things and and they're not always going to show up in a hospital. They're just not. Uh, and so what Dr. Weinberg mentioned is, you know, collateral, we need other people. And I know you're going to probably get to this later, but we all have to take responsibility. The student sitting next to the student, the parent or the friend hearing the information that something just seems off more than anything. What do you, th those are, those are excellent points. What, what are some of the challenges that we face in um, seeking a collateral? You know, if we, if we are in a hospital setting and someone's presenting with either a danger to themselves or a, a, a danger to others, then, you know, as a clinician, you're, it's incumbent upon you to, to seek that out and go a little bit deeper. And, and sure. you know, Dr. Weinberg talks about asking very open-ended questions and, you know, leaving no stone unturned in that way. But are there additional challenges if someone's not in a hospital setting? And you know, how do you how do you get more information if it's a community member or someone that you're having only a few interactions with a couple of months? And and I imagine that would happen often in like a public safety space. Yeah, I I think you know I learned something pretty interesting when I got to go to the U of A. So many different people had knowledge. None of them communicated with each other. Uh, I think sometimes people don't know where do I go with this information? What if I'm being silly, right? Like what, you know, what if they think they minimize what I'm saying? Maybe I should minimize because it's really not that big of a deal. We don't have enough people in the world who actually do a gut check anymore, uh, right? Because violence and, and, and I don't want to blame video games, but violence and the news and it's, it's normal, it's common and not enough people go, 
that just doesn't make me feel right. And I need to, and I need to dig more and they're afraid to, or they don't know how to, um, even just defending yourself, right? Like we really, there's a lot of people who help. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Um, and so I think it's an education of we're all responsible. We all have to kind of take ownership of this. And I rather be wrong every day than, than miss out on, oh my gosh. And I, I happened, I knew this information and I didn't let that go. You know, I didn't, I didn't find somebody. And I think, I think it's the police, right? I think they don't have enough people to take some of this information, but them too, like being able to act quickly when they do get that information and how far do they take it? And the, and you know, the school system, right. There was something that, uh, some research got done. I don't know if it was, I don't remember if it was Columbine, uh, I think it was Virginia tech where, uh, some of the, some of the literature that some of these, the student was writing was very violent and, and kind of explicit and the professor, nobody said anything. Mm, Right. You know, and we got to ask questions like, Hey, are you okay? Hey, this seems really, you know, dark and, and dark can sometimes make sense, right. To Stephen King, it makes sense. But where is that coming from? Is that creativity or something going on? Let me ask this. If, if you're in a space like, uh, where we do our crisis assessments in the ER and you have a patient who's presenting as either suicidal or homicidal, Mike, how do you handle, how would you handle that crisis intervention piece? Because, you know, what I'm hearing is we're having difficulty going deeper, asking questions about, you know, a person's, uh, you know, thoughts or, or, you know, their fantasies, their feelings of being like ostracized from the community. But in that crisis space, the hospital, Mike, you know, how do you how do you get there? How do you how do you open someone up or peel back the onion? I think Stephen, for me, I think trying to understand that individual's history, either by gathering information directly from themselves or from collateral sources, and that could be, you know, what what was happening, you know, uh, prior to the event that brought them to the ER. Because I think going to an ER for a lot of people is really an acute event. And I treat it as an acute event. So I'm trying to understand, kind of get a picture in my mind of what was transpiring that warranted that person either being brought in by EMS, brought in by 911, brought in by a family member that felt like this raised, their clinical picture raised themselves to a level where they needed acute services in the emergency department setting. So I always want to be looking at slowing down gathering as much collateral as I can to try to get a profile and understanding of this individual in, in that kind of recent acute setting, because I've obviously we're, we're working off of what their, their current clinical symptoms are and trying to come up with the, the best clinical disposition based on that information. But I also, I, I try to take, you know, and this goes back in time a little bit for me, but I, I always try to take a look at the history of, of the person and what was this person's life like and how did they solve problems? How did their family members solve problems? What was that, you know, what was, what was their social history like in relationship to this issue of, of violence, whether it's violence towards oneself or violence towards one, one another and, and trying to develop that kind of profile. So 
Um, how well did they? Ha- how well have their fa- has their family handled issues in the past? What was this person's academic life like? Did they did they face challenges with, you know, completing um, uh, tasks or or graduating from school or, and then what their relationships were like with peers? When when you're having these discussions, are and I guess this could be for anyone on the panel, but are people forthcoming about their their history? Do you, you know? I know that. Um, Dr. Weinberg has talked about going deeper, but when you do that, will people share if they've been experiencing fantasies or having thoughts of, of doing harm to someone, or is it something that there, there's going to be an attempt to deceive? Well, I think that you've got to look at this in a gray area. It's not black and white. So what Mike was saying is that history is going to tell you a lot. When you ask the questions, if you're doing it off of a form, check no, yes, no kind of thing, you're not going to get good information versus storytelling, mm. you know, as you, you want to hear their story. You know, frequently angry people are, are exhibiting their anger because they believe no one's hearing them. Mm. And that's why they escalate, their, their, they raise their voice. That's why they posture, because they don't think they're being heard. So if you, as the, as the interviewer, if I start this, this session with, I want to hear you, I want to learn what's going on in your life through your eyes, mm. you're more apt to get more information from them. Is that ever scary when you, when you go into a you know, and you're asking someone to tell their story and you're in a situation where maybe they do reveal something really dark, is it ever, you know... Uh, a moment where you worry about your safety? I can, I mean, you know, I'll speak as a female on the panel. I've had people bring in weapons. I've had, you know, and show them to me. I've had people attempt to intimidate me. And I think it depends on what you, I mean, there's always a fear, right? A little bit of fear. Like, I really don't know what this person's going to do. But uh, some of it has been, what is the intention of that? And so I can think of one guy who was uh, court ordered to see me, history of domestic violence. And part of it was he, you know, Dr. Weinberg mentioned like getting off on it. He kind of wanted to see me be intimidated. You could tell that was part of it. Uh, So I had to posture back up a little bit, Um, you know, having said that, you know, there are people that I think are straight, you know, their whole intention is to be, uh, I don't want to say violent, but to create that space, right? That aggression or that, that space. Um, you know, I, I, I look at it from the other side. What if I'm the one getting bullied? What if, you know, the, the client or the patient is the one getting bullied and it's not an act out of anger, but it's an act of desperation. So I agree, Mike and, and, and Dr. Weinberg are both coming from that story. Like, you know, what's, what's been the worst day of your life and, and how did you get out of that? And if they say something where there was purpose and there was driven and there was, and there was this good decision-making, then, you know, okay, we're in a good, you know, they have a history of being able to solve that problem to, to Mike's point, if they, if they go, uh, you know, it just, it fizzled out, or I just moved on and I avoided it, or, or I, you know, and you can input anything in there, then now you're dealing with something different or an escalation. So one of the things I look for, and I, I know we've heard this expression, 
what do they have in their toolbox? So when I'm asking yeah. the questions that Mike was raising about their history, what I'm looking for is the guy who has a hammer and that's it. <laughs> you know, and right. so at every problem he solves, he solves with a hammer. Of course, he doesn't solve it, um, but that's his solution. He screams at people. He yells at people. This is the guy who punches holes in the wall. This is the guy who beats people up and he feels justified because mm -hmm. somehow they have wronged him or the class of people. It doesn't have to be the specific person. It could be the general public because he connects them and and he dehumanizes them, that they're not even humans anymore. And, th and that allows him to act outside of whatever value system he may have. So I think we, to answer your original question around this, will people share? Again, it's a gray area. I can tell you that they will share less if we are doing rote questions off a questionnaire. And the opposite is true. They will share more the more the conversation looks like a conversation versus a interview that I have to do and I'm checking boxes. And, and that means I'm going to hear your story. And there's a whole school of medicine. It's called narrative medicine, where we in this field, they believe by research that people actually get healed better if they believe their doctor is hearing them. And we therapists, I mean, that's that's what we do for a living. And and so, yeah, I think it's imperative that we spend the time, whether it be suicidal or homicidal, to get the story versus yes, no, yes, no, move on. And and there's a lot of information out there, especially with kids. When we have the parents there or foster parents, we have maybe other siblings that are there. You're going to hear stories from them. And they're going to give you that collateral information that you may not get in a 30 minute interview. So if you're in the community and you, you know, Amy had mentioned this earlier and you see someone and you have concerns, maybe there's a, a fear for your safety or, you know, you don't want to stigmatize someone, you know, what is the right thing to do? Who do you go to? Is there a, is there a place where you report this sort of stuff or, if you have a concern and you want to voice that concern, what is the right method? I mean, you know, just thinking on the basic level, all, all police departments have a non-emergency line, right? So that you're not crowding, you know, the 911 system. So you could, you know, Google your local, right? Phoenix PD non-emergency. And that's an, a number where people are to share information, Again, I think there's sometimes fear surrounding that. There's, well, how quickly do we have people who can move on that, detectives or whoever can inquire about that? Sometimes I think too, and, and I think this is a comfort level, and I, and I don't want to negate the fact that not everyone's going to be comfortable with that, so that's okay. But sometimes our own intervention of, you know, it's kind of like seeing a kid get bullied, right? If I intervene and I go, hey, 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 I might stop something from worse from happening. So when you're comfortable and that's something you feel like you have the tools to do, I also suggest that, right? We never know what we are intervening on almost daily if we're the person who's speaking up or doing those things. But I do think there's also a lot of training out there that gives uh, everyday folks 
you know, the tools, not only to, to speak to their kids, right. About, about, you know, whether it's gun violence or bullying or other things, but then also how do we as a community uh, take care of ourselves and the people in our community? Um, mm. You know, there's all different, and it, and it doesn't all revolve around, right. Like getting physically involved, but it's about doing other things. Um, so I think, uh, and I think Dr. Weinberg, you mentioned this before we were even recording about, you know, there's a bigger system issue that we might yeah. not be able to participate in, you know, like access to guns and, you know, you know, I, I think of a recent call that I was involved in um, where officers uh, got, got shot where, you know, the guy was in full gear, the suspect, he, mm-hmm. he had, you know, he had access to a bulletproof vest, headgear, everything, all things that used to not be accessible to the non-military, non-law enforcement world. And now it is. Uh, so that changes things also. From a community standpoint, uh, Mike, are there things that we should be advocating for to promote public safety or to, to promote public health? You know, I, I don't know if in schools right now they have mandated assessments or if we, you know, you, you, see something and someone says something, if uh, what that triggers, but do you know anything about what we could be advocating for or uh, assessments that we could be uh, seeking to do in, in a public space that, that would promote health within the community? You know, Stephen, I think this is really a, a critical area. Certainly uh, adverse childhood experiences is kind of a wonderful tool to use to really to really uncover kids and trauma histories and kind of unstable family life. Uh, that is one particular area that I think ties in to obviously working with kids, but also when we're working with adults, understanding, kind of trying to get a picture of what their childhood was like. What, what, what did they have to deal with? Did they move around a lot? Did they have stable relationships Were their, you know, the parents, uh, what were the history of their, their parents and their experiences like? Was there trauma history there? So I think that's one big area is is really training professionals on uh, that tool, that adverse childhood experiences tool, because I think that creates a nice framework and kind of creating this understanding of their history and their narrative. And that's something that Michael, you know, Michael spoke about. Narrative medicine to me is a critical tool for for professionals to learn because it's all about communicating an interest in, I want to get to know you, um, even if it's for the next two hours in a crisis episode or in you know the beginning of therapy, if we can communicate in, in that type of fashion, it creates a therapeutic alliance to that individual that they're going to be much more willing to kind of open up accept our uh, recommendations and our approaches and maybe some solutions to, to what's happening in their lives. So I think that's an important part. I think in general, just from a macro public health perspective, clearly we have a gun issue and just the prevalence of weapons is a, is a major uh, public health threat. We, we try as professionals, we maybe stay away from that as, a, as an issue, but we have to address the, the just the volume of weapons that are readily available in people's lives. And, and what we can do kind of on that standpoint is certainly the counseling against lethal means is a big piece and having those conversations with family members, uh, parents, grandparents that, hey, listen, we have some vulnerable, per- 
vulnerable person here, the last thing we need is for them to have access to these dangerous weapons because those situations don't end well and there's no coming back from those situations typically. So we have to address the counseling against lethal means and really all the work that we do, especially when it involves a, a vulnerable child or adolescent or young adult. It really doesn't matter the age, but certainly those individuals, we can play an important role in communicating with their parents and family members. I was thinking from a proactive perspective at a micro level, not a macro level, is uh, borrowing something from some of the schools. They have what's called a threat assessment team. Maybe that's something we could develop in our hospital settings, that when we see patients in the emergency department that fit that criteria, there's a, a mini team that we can pull together to discuss uh, some options that include partnerships with the hospital administration, possibly the attending physician and, and the CPR therapist or someone at a, the administrative level. Dr. Weinberg, could a, could a threat assessment team be implemented in other areas of our community? So if you have, you know, a student at a school who's been identified as being at risk, could they be evaluated by a threat assessment team or even, you know, uh, at a uh, some other level? In my mind, I, again, I, I try to be micro because I get overwhelmed with the big picture. I think the assessment can be done by our staff. It's then what do you do with the assessment once you've done it? And that's where I think you need to have a team approach. So it's not all on the shoulders of the CPR therapist when they come into this scenario. And, and I think if that team is made up of different disciplines, you know, so it's, you know, the hospital. But it, I mean, I, again, this came from it, I, uh, my research on this. I got this from the school systems. So they're doing this in, in many schools, uh, which just rang the bell. That, well, gee whiz, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe that's something we can do in a similar fashion in, in the hospital setting. The other thing is that we really need to train therapists on doing a comprehensive assessment for both suicide and homicide, and that the yes-no answers are really not what we're looking for. Uh, so if we can do a more thorough assessment and we can have a team that we can use to bounce our assessments off of, it's sort of like screen as step one, which is uh, just to take some observational concept of the individual and say, hmm, I think this person may be someone who fits the criteria. Now we're going to do an assessment, which is going to be pretty comprehensive to get, and it could involve collateral information, et cetera. And now that I've done my assessment, do I have a place where I can take this and run it by a team to say, okay, now what are our disposition options? I think if we did something like that, it would be pretty significant. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to be argumentative or challenging, but, you know, I also don't want to minimize the work that the clinicians in the world are doing. Because I think there's a lot of good work happening. I recently read something that talked about the disproportionate number of completed suicides that had zero mental health history. 
or, and what, let's take that a different way. They had zero ha- documented mental health history, meaning that they never sought services, right? That doesn't mean they weren't managing mental health or other physical health concerns. And so, uh, you know, it, it, I think there's a set of people that we probably do capture inside of an ED or in an outpatient or in other higher levels of care setting. I do think that that is probably getting missed or caught at the same time. I, I do think there's it, it, the system, the healthcare system, uh, and Mike, you know, please jump in on this, doesn't allow that type of timing and some of those things. So when I hear threat assessment, you know, some of my background is like workplace violence and and doing threat assessments like that, you know, most people are reactionary, meaning that an organization or a system has an experience and then they look backwards, right? And so when we're talking about threat assessments in a school or, you know, it's very, you know, it's like unifocus, like we're looking at this one. Are there other types of preventative? So, so it sounds like what you're talking about is like, taking more of a preventative approach or so if you're looking to do that, what are some of the things that we should be doing or could, could we be doing more of? So, so let's start with like the younger generation. I think we have to be realistic that there's not much, there's not, there's not many disciplines anymore that are free from saying that's not my role. Teachers can't say it. Police can't say it. Obviously, mental health, we chose this profession, uh, but even supervisors in banks, in hospitals, you just can't say that it's not my role to understand the needs and, and that I might have an employee or a student who has a mental health or specialty need. We ha- and, that's, and that's going beyond a dis- you know, the world of disability, right? We have to understand what does burnout look like? What does what an overwhelmed kid look like? And that overwhelmed kid, the, the reaction shouldn't be you go to the principal's office, right? So, so you know, Dr. Weinberg mentioned the threat assessments. They're also teaching mindfulness in some schools. You know, my daughter comes home and she's showing me some breathing thing that she's learning at the beginning of her day. Well, why are we doing that? Well, because we're beginning to give them skills that maybe they're not getting at home. Maybe their parents aren't equipped and didn't grow up with those skills, but it's problem solving. It's how do I regulate myself, regulate my emotions? Um, you know, we we also condone uh, negative behavior. You know, if if Jimmy pulls Sally's hair, oh, he just likes you. No, he doesn't. <laughs> That's not okay. We're saying that it's okay that violence was how someone showed that they cared about you. We have to change that verbiage too. So I think it it starts in in other areas also. So you know, if in if in the school system they're locking down because a shooter, you know, to practice uh, for an active shooter. You also should be approaching the idea and not, not just a bullying campaign, but when someone cares about you, what does that really look like? Right. And when we're, and when we're standing up for people, what does that really look like? And I don't have to like you, we don't have to get along, but what's a mutual respect and how we treat people. I mean, so I think there's, you know, there's just other avenues where we need to come into that. Um, and I, and I see that in all types of settings you know, where the employee is getting uh, disciplined or fired, um, maybe for poor work performance. I'm not saying they're not, but when you really look, the person was going through a divorce, uh, they were living out of their car. I mean, you know, things like that, then how are we approaching those things? So my challenging thought 
is that if we continue to do what we have been doing, we will continue to have the results we have. Sure. That we need to think of something out, maybe out of the box. And so mm -hmm. I, I came up with this idea just from what I learned from what some schools are doing. I have no energy what it is. What my energy is, let's not keep doing what we're doing because it's not necessarily working as well as I think it could be working. We could mm -hmm. be doing better. Sure. But to do better, we have to cre create something different than what we are doing. And mm -hmm. my suggestion is that we do something collaborative that involves the system. So we're doing things that everyone together is saying, yeah, let's do this. And we legally can do it and ethically can do it. And the other is to really spend the energy and time in in training wherever we feel training needs need to occur so that we have this as best skilled therapist possible in gathering the information, whether it be homicidal, suicidal, self-harm, whatever it is, that, that uh, we are always on top of the training aspect of that. I heard a quote recently when I was at the Hope Conference and it said, Homi they said, homicide and suicide live in a duplex in the mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was, I thought it was a really interesting quote because it, it kind of encapsulates what we're discussing. You know, if we, if we are focused on prevention and having more of a education within the various communities that we, uh, that we participate in, whether it be schools or work or uh, our social groups, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to identify people who are at risk, who are suffering you know, if there is that closer social co cohesion and also people who are informed of what to be aware of, maybe we can affect some change and then move towards the treatment. Are there any, are there any practical takeaways from our discussion today that someone who wants to, to get involved in this would be able to take action on right away, say, you know, hey, I want to help out my community. You know, this is something they can do right now. Does anyone have any suggestions for, for that, how to give back and use that as our, our wrap up here? You know, one, one area, if we look at things kind of on a community level that I'm impressed with and excited to see, you know, the, the outcomes down the road is this connection between health systems, police, fire, school districts, schools, community centers, um, whether it's for focus on overall health in the community to specific populations like kids in schools or even older adults that maybe are facing significant battles with isolation and loneliness and and so there's a project, and I know and many of you have heard me talk about this, but it's the Blue Zones approach, right, of, of really trying to instill a connection to community and making the community as healthy as possible. So, and I think oftentimes, you know, on a micro level, that one of the clinical outcomes I would always love to see is how do I help a person become better connected, whether it's to their family, to their school environment, to their peers, you know, to their health system, because if people feel connected and they feel like they're, you know, they're, they're part of something, 
hopefully that will result in them not feeling the need to take a dangerous action, whether that's towards themselves or other people. So I think I think creating community is really important for people. And that's one avenue that I see is happening. It's happening on the local level currently, Stephen, with Honor Health and City of Scottsdale Police and fire and, and the public school settings there. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a, a excellent point to, to um, you know, take into the, uh, to the end of our podcast here. I want to thank each of our guests for your participation, for your expertise, and for, uh, for sharing your ideas. The problem that we face as a community, I think we will solve as a community based on, you know, what Mike was just saying, if we're able to come together and continue to create inclusive spaces, then hopefully we will see some improved health outcomes uh, throughout Arizona and beyond. So thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontane, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.